Hello and welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the name of the podcast, which is It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. Hey, Josephine, how are you this week? Mm, Good question. Mm, How to answer it? Let's go with... That noise. I was going to say, it's been a week. However, having said that, we were both engaged in a wonderful event over the weekend, which I really want to talk about because I think that will form some of the basis of our conversation today. But before we do that, Dr. J, it is my eternal mission to find out why you exist. Apart from dreaming of being a Time Lord, I am somebody who got to define myself and my job as Harbinger of Change because ThoughtWorks, where I work, allowed me to write my own job title. And New Zealand, where I was born, allowed me to define my own gender. So I'm transgressive, non-binary, genderqueer, and that is, in fact, my official gender. I am pretty much a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance because branding. And Josephine, why are you? Why am I? Because there was a queer without portfolio hole in the universe and uh, I materialized as a result. My name is Josephine Baird. I am an independent scholar, activist and artist. I occasionally put my things upon the internet, which is probably where you're listening to this right now. And I happen to be a queer without portfolio because... Because unemployment? <laughs> because unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days I'm going to get a portfolio and I can't say that anymore. And if you like this bollocks and would like to hear more, then support us on Patreon so that we can make more great things happen. Patreon.com slash it is complicated, all one word. Well, we were chatting about what we did on the weekend or what we did on Friday night. And we got talking about how making stuff is complicated, how there are as a producer, as somebody who puts things on, as somebody who creates things, there's complications in how we do that. There are complications in the way that we act, in the way that we build people together, and the way that we promote it, and the philosophies behind what might appear simple things from the outside, like how we pay people. Yeah, for sure. There's an ethical process that goes into, for want of a better word, queer event production that I don't see as often or rarely at all in any other form of production. And as somebody who produces events for work, I know that a lot of the skills that I bring or a lot of the perspective I bring from my queer production life, people just kind of look at and go, why would you even think about that in such an odd way? To me, what's now simple, basic things like accessibility, like equity, like fairness, the way that you think about these things is incredibly important. The way you prioritize them is incredibly important. It's our history or experience of creating events or trying to create events and how those complications have taught us. I know for me, it's been a a learning experience over about 20 years or so to figure out the better ways to do this and especially the most accessible ways to do this. I started creating events from the age of about 18 to 21-ish. I was a dancer and a dance teacher very briefly at my university. And we used to put on a dance production every year. And from there, I became something of a, I don't know, I guess a cabaret performer in queer environments. 
which then became a semi-professional career in performance and then became a professional career in performance, which then became a career in film acting, film producing, film writing for a little while, and generally making a spectacle of myself on stage wherever and whenever I could. That also then led to me becoming something of an event producer, because one of the things that became very obvious throughout my career as a queer performer was that there were very few spaces for us. And we often ended up having to make our own. So that weirdly enough, as an independent queer performer and producer, you basically had six jobs of an evening. You would be promoter, you would be selling tickets, you'd be hosting your own event and then performing at it and then occasionally DJing at the same time and then saying goodnight as people left and clearing up the glasses. So you basically had to do everything. And I became a producer for a little while. And that's where I was at the point when I had to stop because I became ill and I couldn't work for a couple of years. And at that stage, I'd learned a great deal. And now that I'm sort of coming out of that particular period in my life, I'm to adjust to my new access needs. I find that I'm having to use that information in new and interesting ways. I worked for many years with a wonderful organization called Attitude is Everything, who promote um, disabled people's access to live music specifically. So large music festivals to small music events. As long as it's live, they want to create more access for disabled audiences, but also disabled artists. And that taught me a tremendous amount, all of which I've been trying to amalgamate into some sort of ethical belief in how events should be produced and how they should be accessible. And I haven't always gotten it right. Far from it. And sometimes I've made mistakes, some of which I've had to learn the hard way. But I do try to learn them. And Jay has been a huge influence on that. Well, you've been a massive influence on me. So, I mean, I never did any events back in New Zealand. And when I came to the UK, I started doing a bit of performance, but I was actually much better used as a performance photographer. I'm a good performance photographer, if I say so myself. I can take photos of performances. And that meant that I got to go and work kind of front of house and backstage at a lot of events. And then Josephine and I worked for the same, I was going to call them troupe company, production house. I'm not quite sure what you would call it for about six or seven years and then from about 2008 and nine I started being a co-producer or a backup producer doing the backstage organizing people programming people and learning how to do everything because one of the things that I learned through that is that to be a successful producer you have to be able to do every single job because at some point there will be somebody who drops out something that fails or there'll be something that's happening that means that suddenly the DJ isn't able to DJ because they're off dealing with something and you have to step up and be able to run the decks with their CDs and be able to just start throwing music on that works. After all of that kind of learning, I decided to start to run a festival based on my philosophy of wanting to show all the different sides of queer and burlesque and music performance spaces that I was involved in because I realized chatting to people that I was seeing 
so many different sides of the London performance scene that nobody else was. And I wanted to give other people that same view that I had of this performance scene. So I created the Festival Quest of the Queer with Maria, the team from whatever, and also they're now me, the drag queen, and their partner, Joe Parslow. And then we built a really, really talented crew around us and a really inclusive crew. It was successful and everything, bar financially, and we've talked about that. And we tried to keep Queerest to the Queer running as a brand over the next six months after the festival. And we just couldn't quite get the toehold that it needed to take off because that idea of mixing those crowds was just a little bit too avant-garde, even though now it's actually happening. And it's really interesting watching that idea of mixing live music and drag performances has started to take off in a few spaces and people are starting to do those same ideas. So I stepped away from printing for about two or three years just because of work, mental health, those things. And since COVID, since the lockdown, I was producing events for work and figuring out how to build them, how to put them together, how to build audiences and slowly building very niche audiences because I was very, very targeted and who I wanted to come along to these things. And we've in fact managed to build some nice little niches there. And then I used some of the skills and some of the technology that I had from there to work with Queer House Party by providing them the tech basis of doing it and really learning from them a whole lot of accessibility and being told I need this to happen and me going, okay, how do I make this happen inside the tech? And that's been really interesting as well. I'm just trying to think of how to approach the subject because it really is a complicated subject. It has many, many facets and I imagine it's one of these that we're probably going to come back to a lot. But what I think of, because we're talking about Queer House Party, just because it happened literally this last weekend and Dr. J and I were talking about it before we pressed record, for me, being part of that event was like seeing a culmination of ideas all come together in one place. And it was really, really lovely. Don't get me wrong, it was a chaotic night, but that's something I'm really used to. I mean, I've been in productions big and small with budgets and no budgets. They're always chaotic like that. And it's always about how you approach it, how you deal with problems, how you deal with complications that demonstrates the quality of the people involved. And on every occasion when there was something to be dealt with, it was dealt with well. And it was dealt with in a version of practice that I consider better or best practice. And that comes from 20 years of experience. I started performing in small queer clubs that invariably would be completely inaccessible to anybody with a myriad of different disabilities. The the spaces were never lit very well. There was no access to the bars, let alone into the venue in the first place. And if you could get into the venue as a disabled person, you most certainly couldn't get on the stage as a disabled person. So one of the things with Queerest to the Queer was we did a, a little video about it and we said, what is queer enough? Because people were saying, am I queer enough to come along to Queerest to the Queer? And effectively, I kept saying, if you think of coming along to Queerest to the Queer, you're queer enough because it's attracted you in some way and it said to you this might be a place where I might find something that is interesting or you're queer enough to walk in the door because you're open-minded enough to come along and think hey there might be something here for me 
And the questions I've seen come up time and again, especially where communities who are producing large events seem to ignore or forget entire sections of the culture that they would hope to be accessible to. So whether that be community members who are just not made to feel welcome because they're just not included in any way. I've been to several clubs where it'll be like, well, we're, we're sort of for women and non, non-cis people. And even then the trans people are going, yeah, but do you really mean me? Or do you mean the sort of trans people that you normally associate with? The cultural access is a real question. And the weird thing was that some of these things were way too normalized. So for example, there would always be a really good excuse for a lack of physical access. Well, you know, we have to run a club in this tiny venue because there are no other venues and this venue happens to be inaccessible. And if we didn't run it, it wouldn't happen at all. And to my shame, for a long time, I would accept that as an excuse and say, okay, yeah, especially working in London where venues were really inaccessible. And don't get me wrong, Stockholm is pretty much just as bad. And we would constantly have this conversation, like to the point where we came to the conclusion that no, actually, it's not okay. It really isn't. And I'm really glad we finally learned our lesson. I had to learn that lesson. And I learned it in part from working with Attitudes Everything and working with Dr. Jade, because every time we've done an event together, you and I, you have been really, really clear about access in all levels. So not just, as you said, about disability access, but in terms of cultural access about welcoming and making very, very clear, and I mean literally clear, you have to say it, being very welcoming and trying to invite in those communities that are often left out for one reason or another. One of the things we did with Careers to the Queer, we focused on ensuring that there was a good mix of people who we put on stage and it wasn't tokenism, it wasn't, okay, so we've got 10 performers and they're all white, okay, maybe we need one black act on there, which is what you often see people saying when they're not thinking about it in the right way or in the way that I would think about it because it's not saying that my way is right it's just saying that's my way of approaching it is to go what space can I give to somebody how can I give somebody the room to bring stuff on we set up partnerships with parts of the black community and connected with LGBT underground and Kaysa Rose from Black Lives Matter. And I gave them a room and a budget and just said, go for it, curate, put on a space because this is yours to run. And that to me was really important of saying, here's a space and go for it rather than, okay, well, tell me your three top performers and I'll put them on the main stage. But it was also about ensuring that people felt safe within those spaces safe to be themselves there wasn't that uh, because i've sometimes had it of you're our queer speaker and i'm like the fuck i'm the only one i'm not a good voice for all of the queers i'm not the only voice for all the queers and all the transes and all the others what you were trying to do was to provide an answer to a significant problem maybe not the answer because maybe there isn't an answer maybe there is answers and your answer was this in this case And I can tell you certainly from experiencing at the other end when it went spectacularly wrong, (laughs) because I've experienced that very many occasions. And what you were describing reminded me of a very large event that had many stages. And I was brought on as a producer for a particular event during that festival, ran for several days. And part of my discussion with the production team was 
discussing their main stage. They had several stages and they had a very, very large main stage. And I said, well, my event is sort of off to one end. And they said, yeah, you know, we are constantly being criticized because we don't put enough different acts on the main stage. Listen, Josephine, you have access to different people. By, by the way, that just meant people who aren't white, cis, <laughs> normative. And I was like, oh, great, I'm that person in the room. And they said, can you recommend some artists? And I said, actually, yes, I can. I'm going to go away and I'm going to get you a list of people who are very, very good, who have different access needs, who come from different parts of our very communities and who might represent an actual sense of the real diversity of our community. And I gave them a long list of names with as many people as I could think of. And I said, here is their phone number, here's their email, here's their website, here is video of their acts. I've done all the work for you. Here's a giant list, pick several, I don't care who. And they picked exactly zero. And I did my event and nothing changed on their main stage. And I was like, wow, now I know what literal tokenism is. Like, and they didn't give a shit about us. And they barely supported our event. They barely gave us the tech we needed. And it was just painful. But of course, because <laughs> we effectively became the different event, I then started to feel absolutely awful trying to promote artists who really deserve to have that spotlight to be center stage in these environments that are often spectacularly homogenous. And I realized my mistake. I was helping to put together the programming for a stage for another large festival. I was helping program what was nominally termed the cabaret stage, also known as the cabaret back of a truck in the middle of a street. When I raised the non-binary representation and the trans representation because they had a women's stage, and I said, well, there's issues with the women's stage and I know there are non-binary people who are allowed to perform on that stage and there are non-binary people who are not allowed to perform on that stage because of how they're being read by other people. So why don't we be explicit and open that stage to non-binary people and be explicit about what we will have on that stage, that we're not asking people to effectively not be their non-binary selves to perform on the stage and to allow all non-binary genders to perform on the stage. And I was told, no, that was a women's stage and that was what the women wanted. And if I wanted a non-binary stage, they would open another non-binary stage for me. And I was like, but that's not what I'm asking for because I don't want us to be on the back of a truck down a side alley that 50 people will come and see. I want us to be on the stage that we're already on, just being able to be our non-binary selves and not be assumed to be cisnormative. See, now here's a question. Would you rather be listened to or would you rather be paid? Because I know we'd like both, but if you have to choose one over the other. I had to make another decision about pay. And Dr. Jane actually taught me this, and I want to go into this next, is that I decided that I would no longer run events where I couldn't pay the artists. And I would no longer do events that weren't able to pay me unless that event gave me something else that was valuable, or more specifically, they were a charity or an event that really needed it. Because there were so many times when I was being asked to speak or perform or do things, and not get paid. And it wasn't just because our community doesn't have a lot of money. It was also because um, our work just isn't valued. And so I was like, I'm doing a lot of this 
talking, performing, speaking, activism, you name it, I was doing it and never getting paid. And it wasn't because I was like, I'm desperate to be wealthy because believe me, we don't do this for the money. There ain't any. But I do like to eat food and drink water and survive. So there came a point where I was just like, okay, I can't live doing this. And also it's really, really fucked up not valuing people's work. So in that sense, people should get paid. And the answer to your question is I'd rather be heard. <laughs> Which is <a> complete <laughs> contradiction. I do completely understand. And I know that it's hard and I know it that it's really hard to do as a freelancer, but we need to not only value ourselves, we need to value the people who work for us as producers. And one of the things that I have always kicked against they have an expectation that people can work for free can do this as a volunteer and I'm like that's great if you've got a good paying job but if you are working on a zero hours contract that my chance of volunteering has to compete with my chance of going out and earning so I may want to volunteer but that's a day of earning I have to give up so we should be paying our volunteers at least minimum wage because then we can open volunteering to more people. And it's not just people who have good stable incomes or can somehow manage to find a day outside of their job. Which means the only volunteers you get are from a very specific set of the community, which means they're the only voices who will be heard. And therefore you won't hear the voices of those people who couldn't afford to come. And I know that because I've experienced it here as well. At Stockholm Pride, it is the largest festival in all of Stockholm every single year in terms of money, in terms of cash flow. They are by far the biggest festival every year. When I first started going in 2004, they paid every performer a salary, entry to the entire festival. And if you're coming from another country, flight and hotel. It was one of the first, it was the first international gig that I did as a professional artist. And it was amazing. I was so thrilled. And we were treated exceptionally well. After that, I would say for many years that Stockholm Pride was by far, I thought, the best version of Pride that I'd ever been to. It still had issues, but I was really pleased with how it went. For years afterwards, the deal would just slowly get worse and worse and worse until one year when Stockholm Pride went spectacularly and publicly bust because the management team had managed to lose millions of kroner completely vanished and they couldn't track it. And so pride went bust. So that year they tried to recoup their money by not paying anyone, not paying any performers at all, which, oh, except for, of course, the very big acts that they would bring in and have, you know, we kind of accepted that one year because we were like, well, it's broke. Okay, we'll feed back into pride, even though it was broke because of who knows, because they couldn't find out. But the year after, but what did they do? Not pay any performers ever again. Because they realized, oh, these people will do it for free. We can just use it. And from now on, and, it, and if you can believe it, the deal has even gotten worse. To the point that the last time I performed for Stockholm Pride, I went to the venue. I almost wasn't allowed into the room where I was performing because I didn't have a ticket to my own event. Wow. And that was when I said, holy shit, what are we doing to ourselves? And yet, as Dr. J quite rightly asked me in a really interesting question, would I rather be heard or paid? I'd rather be heard, but I'm not going to put myself in that situation anymore. And I'm not going to put anyone else in that situation. Now, we may have to create things for ourselves, which is what this podcast is. 
something that we created for ourselves and we can set the rules. And I'm really happy with what we're doing. And I was really happy with Queer House Party because that was the same idea. A group of people who came together with the best ideas and have put them into practice. And I love that because access is a huge priority and everybody gets paid from a pool of money that is gathered together and equally. No, equitably. Equi- sorry, equitably. Those of us who are on furlough, who have day jobs or have salaries, we can decide not to take money out of the pot. And of course I don't because there are people who need money who have lost all of their income streams, who are zero hours contract workers or who worked in bars or worked as DJs and performers. They're the ones that the money should go to. Paying us equally is not going to be fair. Paying us equitably is going to be fair. That's it. And it's a philosophy. It's a way of looking at it. It's a way of looking at the distribution of income. Yeah, well, and also you then by extension, look into whose voices you'd like to highlight. Those voices that aren't necessarily most commonly raised. So when I came in and saw an event that not only emphasized access, and I think eventually, if we don't talk about it today, I definitely want to talk about how Queer House Party especially does access, because I think it's a very complicated topic that you've managed to create a model of practice that I think is incredibly advanced and useful and I've been doing this for many years and I haven't seen it done as well and I think other people should learn from this it's seeing these things all these ideas that I've been sort of experiencing over 20 years and experiencing with you Jay developing over time being put into practice in one place and it makes me so happy (laughs) it makes me so hopeful because of all the horrible experiences that Dr. J and I may or may not include in this episode, I don't know which ones I'm going to keep in or not. They can be really depressing working like this as an actor or an artist because you just aren't valued. But to come on Friday, I got to enjoy and work with an event that put into practice some of the most complicated notions of access and emphasis and being communal amongst different people with different needs, voices that aren't raised very often, and there is a notion of equity. I just, oh, fuck, I needed this. It's a very activist space, so there's a lot of activist voices, not just the talking activism, the doing activism. I think what's really difficult about this episode, and I'm not sure if we've achieved it, I guess I'll find out in the edit, really, is that what we've been trying to cover is a myriad of issues with the production of events and trying to create events. And what Jay is wonderfully sort of summarized with that was that there is, of course, the practical element that one has to get certain things going and keep it going. But it's about the process of what we've been doing, the philosophical angle, the ethical approach to it that infused everything that we did on that evening that made me so happy. And watching a a machine that I was very late to that particular party, literally five minutes before it went live. And I just really enjoy seeing that process because one of the things that it highlighted for me was that often we think of performers or performances as maybe political or raising an important issue or speaking out to our community and saying the things that we wanted to say. And that is true. And highlighting those performances are really important. 
but the actual process of getting that performance on the stage can just as equally be a statement of intent, a statement of philosophy, of care, of doing that political work. The massive amounts of organization that has to happen before anyone gets onto that stage or in front of that camera or joins that particular party to enjoy the space, to have that public moment of support or to share their story. That process from beginning to end has to have the same values that you would like to see on the stage. It has to have the same process. And to discuss that process with Jay, as we often do, has been something we've been doing for many, many years. And I'm really enjoying getting to be able to record some of that now to say, this is our history. We haven't always done it the way we'd like to now do it. But because we've gone through that process for as long as we have seen it done the wrong way, we've come to a point, I think, where we've learned that the whole process is a gestalt has to have the same philosophy. And that philosophy has to do with raising voices that aren't heard, structurally changing things so that people can be accessing it in every single way that means, whether that's physical access, sensory access, mental health, other forms of identity, whatever it is, all forms of access. And I really like talking about that. And I think it's probably something we're going to keep talking about. There's so many things that if you've not got the right mindset about it, if you're not centering yourself on that inclusion, if you're not centering on ensuring you're making space with your privilege, your privilege has given you access to technology or platforms or something, and you're able to use that to make space to include more voices. And that's that core mindset. That's why the organization that I used to work with was called Attitude is Everything. Suzanne Ball, who started that organization, would explain very similarly to the way you just did. Because she would go into venues that were, in England, would be called a listed building, which means a building that cannot be changed because of its historical context. And they would say, we can't remove the stairs, we can't do this, we can't do that. How can we make it accessible? And she would say, you can put yellow strips on the staircase so that somebody who has a visual impairment will see it more readily. You can provide menus in accessible formats. You can provide an, an auditory loop. You can provide people who've been trained to be aware of access, even if it's just that, because attitude is everything. You can approach this with an open and conceptual mind that's ready to learn. Now, these models didn't exist before people actually started doing something about it. And that's why I'm still learning and Jay's still learning. We're all still learning because those models, our culture did not make available for us before we started doing these things. And we will continue to put that into our work here on the podcast or anything else that you would support through our Patreon. And that was a really good segue into self-promotion because branding, but we will put this into all of our work, I have no doubt. And I'm sure Queer House Party, as it carries on, will continue to do so as well. It is just taking the attitude, that mindset, and center it on how do I make this inclusive? Who do I talk to to find out about how to make this inclusive? Do I have a blind spot on inclusion? Have I spoken to people who I wish to include and ask them what their needs are? Or have I just gone, oh, I've read a page and I think I do it this way? Well, yeah, and it's often that excuse that you hear is like, oh, you know, so-and-so 
community doesn't attend these events or listen to this music or is interested in being a performer in this way. It's like, no, that's not true. It's just the environment hasn't ever been accessible to them and they know that. And so they don't fucking bother. There's a reason Mm. I don't attend open auditions because I know (laughs) they're not open to me. So I'm not going to go. So if you want someone to come into that community, you have to seek them out and you have to do the work. You can't expect someone else to do it for you. You can't expect them to tell you, or they probably are because as communities, we tend to to need these things and ask for them vociferously. We just don't get listened to in many, many ways. And that's definitely being shown right now in the political movements that are prevalent right now. So yeah, a complicated topic that will very likely need more episodes of It Is Complicated. And you can find out about It Is Complicated in a number of different virtual arenas, one of which is Twitter. We're now in the trash fire that is Twitter. You can find us on It Is Complicated because you have to skip off the last E because It Is Complicated was too long for a Twitter ID. So we had to drop the last E. For now. It is my absolute delight to always ask Dr. J at the end of the episode, uh, what would you like to talk about next week? We could talk about the removal of transphobia, hate speech from from Twitter and the removal of some people who support JK Rowling from Twitter. I'd rather, yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds really good. comedy i subverted <laughs> i tell you hashtag queer nuisance you knew it was coming